The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, locked out of the walled garden, Apple introduces Friday Night Baseball, of course, without baseball. More on what's next for the company and the stock. Then Barry Diller's in a bit of a pickle. The U.S. investigates possible uh, insider trading on this Activision Microsoft trade. The author who uncovered the scoop is going to join us this hour. Later on, this executive order on crypto has prices higher. The president and Bitcoin coming up next. Deep. We're going to start with tech and what a rebound it is currently on the Nasdaq. It's up over 3%, more than 400 points. Dom Chu has more on what has been and continues to be a very volatile week for tech. Yet we continue to talk about this idea and, and use the words bear and market because we are still in close proximity to that pullback of 20 percent or more from the record highs that we've seen. So for the Nasdaq overall and specifically the Nasdaq 100, the biggest companies in the Nasdaq. It has been a story of maybe not just in the medium term. You can see there the downtrend. If we could talk about maybe it being more of a one step forward, two steps back. But the volatility has been so severe. It's been like two steps forward and four steps back. That's how volatile it's been for the Nasdaq overall. And this particular ETF that tracks the Nasdaq 100 kind of demonstrates that. Broadly speaking, the S&P 500 volatility index, which tracks just how relatively volatile things are for the broader markets using options prices, is again pulling back today. It's at 32. But remember, we got to a high of around 37 during the Russia invasion. And then just kind of if you keep it in context here, the the level 20 is more like the long term average that we are seeing here for the CBOE volatility index. So it's still very elevated compared to where it has been over the last 200 or so days. Within the industry groups that we are watching closely for some of the volatility, you have to take a look at some of the more tech and tech adjacent ones. The Nasdaq uh, cybersecurity ETF, the first trust one, is down about 8% on a year-to-date basis. The fintech ETF is down about 26%, and software is down about 19 But as you can see here, it really has been a bit of a bounce here but still, generally speaking, to the downside, those are among some of the worst. And by the way, cybersecurity, you'd think intuitively, given the focus on Russia, Ukraine and cyber warfare and everything else would be higher. But it's probably one of the more volatile parts of the market overall within the individual names that are getting at least a little bit more of that volatile trade in play here at today's trade. Check out Airbnb, Pinduoduo and NXP Semiconductors. Travel-related technology, Chinese internet, and semiconductors are still some of the more volatile trades at play here. And you can see over the course of just this week-to-date period, some of the bigger gainers there jumping. And then, by the way, mega-cap technology, the the all-important mega-cap trade, we are still seeing weakness on the near-term basis for Apple, Microsoft, and Alphabet. Over the last week, they are down anywhere from about 2 to 4 or 5%. So watch those particular trades, John. Mega cap technology still hasn't gotten that big bid that we would expect in a big Nasdaq bounce like this. Yeah, we're going to talk about that 
right now, Dom, speaking of Apple, uh, up a little less than the Nasdaq, but still more than two and a half percent. The tech giant unveiling a slate of new products yesterday, including the low cost iPhone SE, new version of that, new iPad Air and a Mac Studio with an updated M1 Ultra chip. Joining us now to discuss the product launch and the investor implications, daring fireball blogger John Gruber. Uh, John, good to see you. So it, it seemed to me like the big theme uh, for yesterday was differentiation through silicon. Yes, the iPhone SE to yeah. me as a product is, is more defensive, but even that, the price is higher because uh, apparently they think people will pay for, for performance. And then iPad Air, the Max, I mean, expensive stuff, but pretty unique in the performance capabilities, right? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that in some ways, what they announce is what's ready. And is there really a narrative thread between the iPhone SE all the way to this Mac Studio, which is for serious professionals? If there is, it's the Silicon story. And and they're flexing, you know. And so you've got a $500-ish iPhone SE that has as good performance of any phone on the market, whatever brand, uh, and now you've got this, uh, the Mac Studio with the display, you know, that's that's a starting point of $3,600, $3,700. You know, it's a a very expensive computer. Yeah. And and that's just the starting point. And and I guess the upside there is they don't expect that to be high volume. So in an environment where you've got supply chain issues, right, they can make those margin dollars potentially with these products without having to ship a whole bunch of them. But overall, I think we might be in a period where for Apple investors in particular, there's a shift from the services thesis that they were trying to get us to focus on. Remember when they stopped reporting those iPhone unit numbers to now more of a silicon thesis. If you think Apple's got sustainable advantage over the next three to five years, it's based on silicon innovation across the product line, the existing product line, and then perhaps in AR as well, if we see that product. Yeah, and I think that with the Mac Studio in particular, you're looking at it, it's the same footprint as the Mac Mini that you know that Apple's been selling for for many years now, just a little bit higher. But it's a tremendous amount of performance in a footprint like that, and no other computer company is making uh, a, a, a desktop computer that fits in a tiny little form factor like that, and. The thing that they did that is very unusual for Apple is they even hinted that the Mac Pro is still to come. And I think they almost had to because the performance of the Mac Studio is so great that it would have left people thinking, is this the new Mac Pro? Did they just rename it, put it in a smaller (laughs) footprint? So they explicitly called that out because I think people would have reasonably thought this must be the new Mac Pro. I, that's hilarious. I mean, it sort of dovetails with um, what Morgan Stanley said this morning. And, that, and, and this sort of reflects the general take on the sell side today. And that was the product, uh, they, they were in line with expectations. But as Katie Huberty wrote, it illustrates the unmatched output of their R&D engine, which is $26 billion, um, to, the, to your point, where even, even uh, products that aren't supposed to be marquee end up looking marquee. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then I think the other side is the operations, you know, where, where with the supply chain issues that have been plaguing the entire industry for years now, uh, Apple is putting their top A15 chip, the best phone chip they have, into their consumer-priced iPhone. 
that's that's a total operations flex in terms of uh, something that is going to be high volume. John, I know we've been talking a lot about the silicon story, but I wonder if there was perhaps a more underrated feature that was announced yesterday. You called this out, and that is center stage. It's a video calling feature that uses machine learning to keep people in the frame. The implications of that are are very interesting, right? Not just in terms of work from home, but I thought it was interesting how they sort of put it out there in this typical TikTok dance uh, with the two people that you sort of recognize from that ecosystem. What do you think? Where do you think it goes from here? What is the importance of it? Well, I I just think that it's it's a way of making people look as good as they possibly can while they're you know, like me right now talking to you on TV. I mean, I'm sitting here. I'm not going to move around because I this, this computer doesn't have center stage, but uh, it, it, it's, it's adapting technology to the way people actually work, right? Because if you're in meetings all day long, you, you don't just sit rigid right in the center of the frame, right? You, you, you know, you move around, you, you know, you've got real life. They show people doing it in kitchens and other non-standard office type environments. Uh, and I think it's really important that it comes to the Mac and the iPad because, you know, most people only have one machine that's their quote unquote work machine. So, John, we've got uh, WWDC coming up. We expect that to probably be the next uh, big Apple event focused on software. It tends to be um, for investors. What big either changes or initiatives do you think we should expect? Uh, Apple said they're almost done with this silicon transition. What does that mean for the overall software ecosystem that they're hoping to bring along, bringing even more performance enhancements to their platform? Well, I I think the big tell uh, will be how much of the content for developers at WWDC which almost certainly will be in June. They haven't announced it. But how much of it is going to be focused on AR and VR even before, without without announcing any kind of headset, but talking about doing AR and VR on Mac and on iPad and on phones, what's the message to developers? To me, if, the, if there's a big push towards getting developers to start thinking even more about a, building out AR and VR features for their apps, that's a real tell that, that the headset is imminent perhaps later this year. Yeah, and maybe they'll even show it off well ahead of it being available because they're not right. worried about cannibalizing existing products, right. maybe Facebook's products, right. but that might not be so bad. John Gruber, thank you. Let's turn to Barry Diller this morning, under investigation now by the DOJ, SEC, along with his friend, producer David Geffen, for some options trades that were made on Activision Blizzard, coming just before Activision was acquired by Microsoft, or that was announced. Uh, Joining us this morning to discuss is the reporter who broke the story, the Wall Street Journal's Dave Michaels. Dave, good to see you. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, before we get to sort of um, the, the backstory and the outsized amount of attention this is getting, walk me through the, the trade in question. What exactly did happen? Uh, so this was a, a trade uh, where Barry Diller, his stepson, Alex von Furstenberg, and David Geffen all acquired um, options uh, through a purchase through J.P. Morgan. Um, they bought the right to buy about Four million shares, and um, all of this happened just a few days before um, Microsoft and Activision announced um, their intent to tie up. 
Right. You did talk to Diller. Uh, he did say uh, simply a lucky bet. We acted on no information of any kind from anyone. It is one of those coincidences. What is the general sense about um, how important this feels to the regulators and whether or not it's uh, important relative to the other issues they have going on right now? Well, I, I think I mean the, the regulator, the Securities and Exchange Commission, has a really large enforcement division. So, you know, when they are made aware of trades that, at least on paper, uh, look uh, suspicious or uh, they have questions about, they're always going to investigate. In this case, the Justice Department, according to our reporting, is also investigating. So um, I, don't, I don't think the competing priorities matter that much. Um, this sort of investigation is a staple of, of both the SEC and the DOJ. Dave, it's Deirdre. I read your piece. Um, and I wonder, I assume that the three gentlemen um, each have a money manager who are making trades on their behalf. Um, any indication over whether, you know, there's anything there? Have you looked into that route? Is it possible they use the same one? Does that have to do with this story? Well, I don't, I don't know that we know that they used a money manager or an agent to place these trades. I mean, we don't have all the information yet. I think that's a question that the SEC or the DOJ would certainly ask. Um, but we did not report and we don't know um, sort of how, how sort of actively uh, these, this, this trade was placed, if it was a broker or a money manager, or if one of the individuals um, basically did, did it themselves or, or all three of them. David, it's an interesting case, isn't it? Because, I mean, everybody knew that there was action around Activision Blizzard. There were questions uh, of whether Bobby Kotick was going to remain. And there could have been, um, I mean, the stock could have been expected to move if he stepped down. It could have been expected to move if any number uh, of people made an offer on it. Um, so, so it's not as though uh, there was no expectation that perhaps the stock was undervalued or could move. Is that at all factoring into the thinking around the investigation here that you heard? Oh, I'm, I'm sure it will. Uh, the, the, you're totally right. Um, the stock uh, price uh, had been down. Um, a lot of people who, um, you know, who, who look for these kinds of deals uh, probably had a theory that that something might happen. Maybe Activision would get acquired, and uh, and and we reported to, to today that um, the individuals, you know, their their explanation right now is they thought the stock was undervalued. So. So they got in on this trade. Um, so, you know, there could be a very good, good explanation, um, kind of an innocent one for, for why they made the trade. But you can be sure that, right, that that'll be one of the one of the facts that the SEC and the DOJ in, investigate. All right. Uh, we'll certainly follow uh, the developments uh, going forward uh, and we'll follow your coverage as well. Dave, thanks so much. Good to see you. Dave Michaels, The Wall Street Journal. Thanks. Still to come, an executive order on crypto, plus an upgrade for Netflix. Tech Check is just getting started. Don't go anywhere. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. 
Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All the single ladies, time now for a gut check on Bumble after investors took some time to figure out where to put their money to work. Looks like they finally found a connection that might last. The stock surging more than 45% after the company reported a surprise profit in Q4 while raising full-year guidance. Bumble also saying it's discontinuing services in Russia, maybe not all the single ladies. Revenue from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus makes up 2.8% of total income. Despite today's move, the stock's still 43% below its February 2021 IPO price of $43D. Also, this rise of 46% just takes it to where it was at the end of February. Yeah, uh, it has sold off a lot. Now it's coming back a lot. I don't know how to transition from all your single ladies, uh, John, but we will turn now to crypto. President Biden signing an executive order focused on addressing the risks, benefits and regulation of digital assets. So how should crypto investors navigate this latest announcement? Joining us for more is Sequoia Capital partner Sean McGuire. His firm recently unveiling a fund reserving between 500 and 600 million dollars for crypto investments. Sean, uh, good morning. It's great to have you back with us. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to read a line from the executive order, almost at the very top. It says the rise in digital assets creates an opportunity to reinforce American leadership in the global financial system and at the technological frontier. I wonder, how do you square that with the ethos of crypto and Web3, which is open and democratic? Reminds me of the early days of the Internet. I was very excited to see the language today, you know, said all the right things, which is try to protect consumers while also fostering a very open and healthy ecosystem for innovation. And so, anyways, I was very impressed. At the same time, Sean, um, it didn't actually introduce any policy, but as many have noticed, it sort of represents an important commitment and acknowledgement that crypto is here to stay. I wonder, though, do you think that the U.S. risks moving too slowly on regulation and things like a central bank digital currency, which I know was in this order, especially at a time when some in the crypto community um, are predicting the erosion of the U.S. dollar, given geopolitical events? I mean, the rate of learning in D.C. over the last 12 months has been pretty staggering, to be very blunt. You know, I've been really impressed to see kind of a large portion of the House and Senate get up to speed really quickly. And so it's, it's hard to say what time frame, you know, the follow-ups to this EO will be. But I, I think the U.S. has a strong opportunity to be a leader in global crypto. Yeah, Sean, I guess, you know, uh, when it comes down to it, I guess people are trying to read tea leaves uh, based on what we know about the framework going forward. And and the argument this morning is that uh, net net, the U.S. might take a light touch. Do you think that's fair? Again, you've got to lean on the like historical precedent. And I look back to some of the internet legislation in the 90s, you know, the Telecommunications Act 96 and, you know, some of the earlier legislation. And I, I think we're, the language here really reminds me of that. I mean, my, my sense is they're trying to be inspired by Telecommunications Act. And I think that bodes very well for the crypto community. Like there shouldn't be, crypto is actually going to thrive with some regulation. Like we 
have had such a lack of guidance of what is in bounds. And so it's actually going to be helpful hmm. to have a little bit of regulation. It just needs to be done in a really intelligent way. And this, this is very promising. Sean, my impression here, correct me where I'm wrong, is that part of this move, for example, in Bitcoin and other cryptos today, is just the idea that the worst case scenarios are off the table, that you know, the, the administration isn't going to propose or do something to, to drastically harm the crypto ecosystem. Does this provide any kind of a green light for companies of, of the sort that you might be investing in to push forward now more aggressively laying the groundwork um, you know, for, for services built on crypto? I would be nervous to, you know, go tell crypto companies that we're back to Wild West days and that they should kind of operate kind of assuming that regulations can be very light. I think it's unclear where the boundaries are going to go. What I took from this is that the White House is, is planting a flag that they, they, they think crypto is important. And they want to keep innovation very strong in the ecosystem. But it's hard to say exactly where the fault lines will get drawn in the future. And so I would say there's certain categories, like maybe crypto video games, where, you know, I think my interpretation of this legislation is that things like in-game assets, you know, a skin for a character or something like that, like, seems unlikely that that's going to get regulated as a security based on the language that I'm seeing. I, I could be wrong. But, um, you know, and so it, it just it kind of it moves the boundary a little bit, but it's still very unclear where the fault lines will be. Sean, it's great to have your insights, especially on a day when we got that executive order. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And be sure to check out Crypto World, CNBC's digital show on all things crypto by heading to CNBC.com slash Crypto World. Carl. Guys, coming up next, why our next guest says don't buy stocks quite yet despite what he calls a rubble of cratered valuations. Also, check out MongoDB surging on some results. The CEO is going to join us tomorrow as we haven't quite taken out yesterday's intraday high on the S&P. Stay with us. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back. Let's get down to Washington once again, where our Morgan Brennan joins us with a special guest. Hi, Morgan. Hey, Carl. That's right. I'm here at the McAleese Conference here in Washington, D.C. And joining me now exclusively is General Jay Raymond. He's chief of space operations for the Space Force. General, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Morgan. It's a real honor. So I do want to start a little bit with the news of the day. I mean, you stood up the Space Force. First time we've seen an armed service stood up in over seven seven decades. You've done that over the past couple of years. At the time that we saw the establishment of it, some folks balked. 
Now we have this Russia-Ukraine conflict playing out. We have some experts warning that this conflict could potentially extend to space. Does this now become a case study for why we saw this service created? Well, I think it's a, it shows just how complex the strategic environment is, and, and space has a significant role in that complex environment. You know, space fuels all instruments of national power, whether it's diplomacy, economics, military, or information, and they're foundational to uh, what we do as a joint coalition force. So what is the Space Force's role in this situation as we see it play out and the U.S. offer support to our allies in the region? Yeah, so the Space Force, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, operates space capabilities that provide capabilities and information to our, to our uh, forces and to our allies and partners. We operate capabilities like the Global Positioning System that provides navigation and timing. We operate communication satellites. We operate missile warning satellites to detect any kind of missile that may be launched uh, that we can provide proper warning. We surveil the space domain to make sure uh, that those capabilities, uh, that we know what's up in space, and we integrate with all of the geographic combatant commands around the globe. So from, from Indo-Pacific to UCOM, uh, we, we're, we're a global capability, always up, always running. So I wonder how you see this conflict in terms of space. I mean, the fact that we have so many assets uh, they are so crucial to not only daily living for billions of people, but to things like intelligence and military capabilities. How great are the threats that you are securing those assets from, and how are you assessing reactions to, to those threats? Yeah, so it's, it's very clear that space has become a warfighting domain, just like air, land, and sea. And what historically has been a benign, peaceful domain without a threat is no longer the case. We used to have the luxury of taking space for granted. As long as you could launch a satellite in orbit, that satellite survived what we called infant mortality, that it, that it made it onto orbit and, and, uh, and worked, then uh, that's all you had to worry about. That's not the case today. And so we are very concerned about protecting and defending, and that's one of the big reasons why we established the Space Force, to be able to, to deter conflict from beginning or extending into space, uh, to be able to protect and defend those, and to be able to make sure that all of our forces and, and our partners around the globe have that information that's so vital uh, to everything that we do. So Russia, Russia just recently said that the hacking of a satellite would constitute an act of war. When we talk about what would constitute a conflict in space, how does the U.S. see it? Yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to comment on what the Russian uh, uh, official said. Okay. And I think, and I'm not going to speculate on what might be or what might not be uh, uh, an act of conflict. Uh, I will just tell you, uh, there is, the domain is contested, uh, and there's a range of threats from reversible jamming to kinetic destruction, and we're prepared to handle and respond to any of those threats that might appear. Okay, understood. Uh, so this speaks to, of course, modernization priorities and how you're thinking about future funding and technological development for the Space Force. Uh, one of the things you've been focusing on quite a bit is this idea of resiliency. What does that look like? Yeah, so the, the capabilities that we operate are, are the most exquisite capabilities, the world's best capabilities. They provide us great advantage, but they were really built for a different domain. They were built for a domain that didn't have a threat. And so now that there is this, it's become a contested warfighting domain, and there is a threat, we need to shift to a, to a more resilient architecture. The capabilities we have are, are spectacular, but they're not easy to defend. And so we're looking to leverage what's going on with what is a terrible word to use in the space business, but this explosion of commercial space activity, to be able to leverage that capability and proliferate our constellations to be more resilient by the design. It's very, the analogy I would use is on wealth management. 
and portfolios. You don't put all your stocks in one stock so something happened at it crash and you go broke, you diversify that, that portfolio. And so that's what we're trying to do is diversify our architecture to be more resilient to any specific threat that might be out there. So when we talk about diversifying the portfolio, diversifying the architecture and, and this incredible emergence of commercial space and space capabilities, I mean, space has changed dramatically just in the last couple of years. What are some of those partnerships or some of those um, ways that you're leveraging relationships with commercial companies playing out? Yeah, so his historically what has been commercially viable in space are big, large communication satellites, at which we leverage, and commercial launch. Technology, as you just highlighted, the, the main has changed. Technology has allowed much smaller satellites to be more relevant, and launch costs, because of the commercialization of launch, has gone down. Removing those or reducing those barriers to entry into the domain has provided great opportunity. And so we partner with communications, with launch, and now pretty much every mission area that we accomplish will have a commercially viable, uh, may have a commercially viable uh, commercial capability that we could leverage and build into this proliferated architecture. And of course, one of the amazing things you just mentioned to me before was the fact that there is a lot of interest uh, in terms of talent looking to come and work with the Space Force as well. General Jay Raymond, we so appreciate your time and your insights today. Thank you for joining us, the Space Force Chief of Space Operations. Morgan, thank you. John, I'll send it back over to you. Morgan, thanks. Timely indeed. And time now for a news update. Rahel? It is. Hi, John. Here's what's happening at this hour. Job openings in the U.S. remain near record levels. They inched down only slightly to 11.3 million in January. Hiring remains steady, while the number of workers quitting their jobs did edge slightly lower. Oil and gasoline futures have given up nearly all of this week's gains. Some traders are reassessing the supply impact of the U.S. ban on Russian oil imports. Precious metals are also falling. Gold is down more than 2 percent and is back below $2,000 an ounce. Campbell Soup rising 3%, even though quarterly results were pretty much in line with estimates. The company sees easing labor constraints and inflation pressures. And RV maker Thor Industries popping 8% on strong results, reduced sales discounts, boosted margins, and helped drive earnings that were more than 50% above estimates. Now, despite today's gains, Thor shares are still down about 30% over the last year. And a correction now from the last hour, the pig heart transplant was actually done at the University of Maryland Medical Center. Deidre, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. Still ahead, what to expect from Disney's annual shareholder meeting this afternoon and how CEO Bob Chapek's Florida controversy weighs in. More Tech Check in just a moment. Checking in on some software names, particularly in the cloud space. Uh, MongoDB stock up double digits right now after it beat on the top and bottom lines for the fourth quarter. Stock, though, still lower since the start of the year, flat uh, over the past 12 months. On average, cloud names have lost more than a quarter of their value since January 1st. So, which names are winning? which might be undervalued in this sell-off. Joining us now, former VMware chief operating officer and SAP president Sanjay Poonin. Sanjay also on the board of cybersecurity startup Sneak. Uh, good to see you. So lots of news, but specifically let's start with MongoDB and Google Cloud um, buying Mandiant. 
What's being said about where we are in valuing these companies right now if you've got kind of a hyperscaler uh, buying what they see as value and MongoDB popping? Good morning, John, Deidre, and Carl. Uh, first off, let me just say my thoughts and prayers are with the people of Ukraine in this tough time. Uh, coming to your question, there's two questions there. Let me take them sort of first with the Google Mandian one, which is cybersecurity, and then uh, MongoDB and the general trend of data. Um, I think, listen, I think Google did not have a very big brand in security, uh, the Google Cloud part. Certainly, Google's got a very strong reputation for their data centers and, and security. But I think this is a good move. I tweeted out yesterday um, that this gives them a lot more relevance. If you look at Kevin Mandia, Mandia is named after Kevin Mandia. They are really kind of like the Sherlock Holmes of the cybersecurity breaches. When that happens, they, they discovered solar winds. Typically, Kevin and his team are the first ones called, and I think it gives Google a tremendous amount of credibility um, in security discussions. It adds a consulting arm to their product arm, uh, and it signals now beyond you know Looker, which was the first acquisition that Thomas had done a couple of years ago. Now that they're going to be you know probably a little bit bolder on M and A, uh, not to the extent of the big one like Microsoft and Activision. Uh, so hopefully this goes through antitrust. They are not a big player in cybersecurity or in the cloud area. So we'll see how DOJ looks at this. But I think I'm <clears throat> generally very positive on that. On MongoDB, I think very quickly there, there's the general trend to data. So I think if you're willing to be patient, I'm a long-term investor. Um, I, you know, certainly some of these these data stocks were so highly valued at the end of last year. Snowflake at 100, 100 billion market cap. But with the correction, you have to look at winners that are um, in their categories, the best technologies, Snowflake, Datadog, MongoDB. Um, and even though Snowflake corrected, I think at their recent valuation, Datadog and now MongoDB, these are category winners in this. In this case, MongoDB is the best document database technology. Okay, now let's take a step back. Um, you spent quite a while at SAP, which is, uh, you know, the big European software company. I'm curious about how this uh, expected slowdown in Europe from this unfortunate war might trickle across the global economy and global technology in particular. A lot of software companies don't break out their uh, geographic uh, revenues in a very granular way. What is your expectation for how a European slowdown and then energy price spikes from, from energy-hungry data centers might affect this market? Yeah, let's take them one at a time. I think first off, you know, many companies have followed the consumer companies like uh, McDonald's, Pepsi, Starbucks to, to close down Russia. Um, you know, not much of the big companies, even the software companies here do revenue in Russia. I would have estimated it's 1%. Maybe it, in SAP's case, means 2%. The biggest companies there were Gazprom, Luke Oil, Spare Bank. Uh, so these are oil and gas or, you know, banks. Um, so I don't expect it to have a tremendous exposure to the Russia situation as based on tech. Europe is typically about 30, 40% of revenue for many of the software companies. Uh, the bigger they get, the clearly the bigger that proportion gets. And I'll be watching in Q1 earnings how, you know, they are seeing the, 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 the situation in tech spending in UK, Germany, and France. Those are typically the big three countries. And certainly SAP being the biggest software company, they'll be the first signal of is there a European slowdown in spending? Uh, they've certainly got a much higher proportion of European revenue than any of the other companies. But so far, um, and it's very early days, uh, I'm not seeing anything that's signaling a slowdown in tech spending in Europe. 
Hey, Sanjay, it's Deirdre. Um, in terms of sort of the geopolitics of this, we've long talked about the splintering of the Internet, the U.S. and the West on one side, China on the other. And I wonder if you think that Russian sanctions and limiting American technology uh, will accelerate that bifurcation. We've certainly seen it happen already in terms of payments and chips. Is there opportunity for Chinese software and cloud companies? Yeah, I certainly think you could take them Deirdre, one at a time as it relates to some of the cloud companies like Alibaba have been aggressive about pursuing many of the places where they could see the U.S. not yet as strong, whether it was Africa, Middle East, and perhaps they'll do that. You saw that the, I read the New York Times today, the Commerce Secretary has announced, you know, potentially they will be very punitive uh, at com- companies that sell te- uh, chips and advanced technology to Russia and sort of try to sidestep some of this in sort of China situation. Uh, and that's probably targeting mostly SMIC. Uh, but they are a very small player. And, you know, um, Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung are much, much bigger players. So uh, they're under 5%. So I don't expect that to have a material impact. Um, I think to the other question that, that John asked earlier, I think we'll have to watch very closely how energy prices in the data center Many of these companies have been already focused on renewable energy. And I think, quite frankly, if you're a smaller company, this should probably increase your uh, you know, f- fast acceleration to the cloud. But which better company to handle these energy prices than the public clouds, Amazon, Azure, Google, and others? Yeah. And now I want to go broader on the markets here. You seem to, I, b- I believe, be suggesting that now not necessarily the time to plow money back into these software names. Why not? Yeah, I think, listen, I'm a, a long-term investor. So, um, you know, most of what I've been doing the last six, nine months is investing in private companies that are Series A, Series B with a capital fund I've owned on my own. Um, and, you know, I joined the board of SNCC. So I'm looking at much of these long-term trends. And there, um, I think if you can catch a trend that's five or 10 years in these areas, like cloud, uh, move to SaaS applications and security, which are the trends I follow, there's absolutely great companies um, the tech industry is still a flower bed of a number of great companies that I think are going to be formed uh, with disruptive technologies. In the software area, uh, you know, I think these overall trends of category winners, um, I think certainly the move to big companies like uh, Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, because the trend to the cloud is what we saw the last two, three months. I think in the SaaS application space, there's been a major correction uh, with companies like Salesforce and Workday. And you saw, saw in their last earnings, they announced good quarters. So I'd be positive on them. Um, you know, with the correction in some of these data companies, Snowflake, Datadog, MongoDB, uh, I think these are category winners. The multiples are lower. Um, I'm not a sort of a, you know, prognosticator exactly where the stock price would be, but I think that they are certainly in a place now um, where I'd be both positive on them. And I see these companies, when I talk to customers, I talk to a number of customers periodically and certainly the CEOs of big tech companies, I see them investing in category winners where the technology is disruptive. And I think many of these companies, and then of course the other category is cybersecurity, where you saw companies like Palo Alto announce very good quarters. I think that will contain to sustain itself through the course of 2022. All right, well that sounds pretty positive. Sanjay, thank you. Sanjay, thank you, Still to come this morning, investors think they can dress themselves. Uh, Stitch Fix is down double digits as the Dow's up almost 700, 3% gains on the NASDAQ.
Just to keep us honest here on markets, uh, Dow's up almost 700 points here, close to session highs, on the cusp of taking out yesterday's intraday high. And you got oil uh, now down about 6%. Uh, multiple reports now that the UAE will encourage fellow OPEC members to boost production. They would be the first uh, OPEC member to call for uh, an increase in production since Russia invaded Ukraine. So you got some relief in commodities here uh, this morning, John, and equities are following to the upside as a result. All right. Yes. And meanwhile, Disney's annual shareholder meeting kicks off in just about an hour. The stock has lost about a third of its value since its highs almost a year ago. Julia Borston's got more on the pressure facing CEO Bob Chapek. Julia. Well, John, Dizzy CEO Bob Chapek is coming under attack from both employees and shareholders for the company's lack of a critical response to Florida's don't say gay bill. Now, many of those employees and shareholders taking to Twitter to express their outrage. And the company does have around 80,000 employees in Florida. And just last month, Former Disney CEO and executive chair Bob Iger tweeted against the bill, saying it will, quote, put vulnerable, young LGBTQ people in jeopardy. Chapek responding to this criticism in a memo to employees, saying that a lack of statement should not be mistaken for a lack of support, writing, quote, I believe the best way for our company to bring about lasting change is through the inspiring content we produce, the welcoming culture we create, and the diverse community organizations we support. Chapek saying that the company will reassess its advocacy strategies and its political donations. Now, in terms of the items on the shareholder meeting agenda today, shareholder advisory service Glass Lewis recommends that shareholders vote in favor of a proposal for an annual report on median gender and racial pay equity. There are some other proposals that demand more disclosures, including one around lobbying. Now, Chapek and the rest of the board are expected to be reelected and and their compensation is expected to be approved. But some on Twitter and Reddit have said they'll vote against JPEG because of high prices at the parks. Guys, the company has rolled out some price increases in recent months, and, uh, and people are really passionate about those parks. Yeah, although when the wait time uh, on some of these rides is three hours, I mean, they clearly have uh, the runway to do it, Julia. I did want to get you, we've been trying to hammer in mentions of the ad-supported tier at Disney+, Plus, and now we have the Netflix CEO saying, never say never, that would be a huge shift if they were to go that way. That would be a huge shift for for Netflix. And I think it's notable that that comment, the never say never, comes after Disney announces that it's going to have that ad-supported tier. I mean, the Disney shareholder meeting is really different than, than other shareholder meetings. Back when they used to have it in person, you'd have kids show up, you know, grandparents and their whole families talking about different different questions about the park and different movies and things. So I, I think there will probably be some attention on Disney Plus and this idea that they're going to be able to reach a broader audience with that free ad-supported tier. The lower the prices go for everyone else, especially once they have those ads, the more pressure there is on Netflix to think about other ways to have a lower-priced option with ads to reach a broader yeah, audience. Certainly, as we may be starting to see. Julia, thank you. After the break, uh, hell has frozen over. Why one analyst is upgrading Netflix? We discuss that next. Don't go away.
Time for a gut check. Stitch Fix going out of style this morning. Stocks plunging to a new all-time low as the company issues this weak outlook for the third quarter and cuts its full-year forecast. The main concern, struggling to ramp up its customer base and its bet on new direct-to-buy option Freestyle is not attracting as many new customers as they thought. Freestyle is an initiative rolled out under CEO Elizabeth Spaulding, who took the reins in August of 21. Stocks down 80 percent since then. Also hit with a bunch of price target cuts today, now hanging on to just two buy ratings on the street, John, which is uh, very strange because MasterCard's got some new figures out this morning on consumer spending and apparel in general um, is doing well as people start to figure out what they're going to wear to work. Yeah. Carl, I think the value proposition in Stitch Fix has gotten very confusing. You know, they started off with this more subscription tilted model of you get all these clothes and if you keep more of them then you get more of a discount this shift to freestyle makes it more like any other online retailer d and i think it, at least in the messaging that's unclear and now that the guide is unclear operationally that's unclear there's a lot of well a lack of clarity a lot of questions. And as Carl said, that stock is down about 80 percent since the new uh, CEO, Elizabeth Spaulding, took over in August of last year. Raises that question, guys, that we uh, face often is when you get an operator to come in, she comes from Bain. Can they do what sort of Katrina Lake did as a founder with VC backing and that network behind her in the early days? Uh, so uh, that stock, though, has just been brutal, down another 11 percent today. Uh, Don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast to listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing. 2011 was a big year for lasts. Last time the Packers won the Super Bowl. Last mission for the Space Shuttle Discovery. Last time Webbush's Michael Pachter changed his rating on Netflix. Until today, from the end of 2011 to Netflix's all-time high in November of last year, he missed out on nearly 7,000% of share price appreciation until the recent nosedive in valuation. Webbush is now upgrading Netflix from underperformed to neutral, reiterating a target of 342. Today, Needham's Laura Martin also says Apple TV is putting Netflix at a disadvantage. And Netflix's CEO, as we mentioned, says advertising in it isn't in its plans. But never say never, quote, it's not like we have religion against advertising to be clear. D. Um, Pactor's got quite a history, a famous history with this coverage. Yeah, uh, missing out on nearly 7,000 uh, percent. I like that as a segment, guys, calling out uh, some of the calls that have been extremely late, John. Yeah, I'm not a religion against. I thought they kind of did have a religion against advertising. At least Reed Hastings seemed to, but the CFO now saying, Carl, perhaps Things not. change. <laughs> Yep. We'll see what happens with that. Obviously, tomorrow, the most important economic data point of the, of the week in CPI. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.